Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring My Adore, and you can download it on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal is really to raise all voices, big and small, around the world, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve, to advocates, researchers, and more. And today we are having a live show, so you can call in and ask any questions you'd like or or make a comment regarding our topic, which is going to be about the disparities in Alzheimer's disease clinical trials, specifically race and sex-based disparities. And the number to call is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. 4602. Now, I always have to thank our listeners because you guys are so loyal and you take the time to follow us, like, and click and share our episodes on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And that has gotten us known around the world. But more important, it's gotten our guests known around the world. And their information is so um, valuable to everybody in this space. And so I just want to, again, thank you for your collaboration and sense of community because it really is giving people a sense of comfort um, that are that are on this uh, path of dementia. Now, today, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about race and sex-based disparities in Alzheimer's disease clinical trials. But before I go there, I want to give a shout out, of course, to the Memory Cafe directory. I just, I love the Memory Cafes. Many of them are, have gone virtual now during COVID, and Dave has broken those out so they're easy to find. And so you can join a Memory Cafe that's virtual that doesn't have to be in your area anymore. So just go to MemoryCafeDirectory.com to find more information. There's also another great resource out out there for you, and it's with Coral Health. And Coral Health has um, two apps that you can download for free during COVID-19. One is called Music First, and the other is Coral Faith. And um, you and your personal dementia will really enjoy both of these apps, and it's so nice to be able to have them readily accessible. Now, um, I want to also give a shout out to a trial called the GAIN trial, and this is an Alzheimer's uh, trial for people 55 to 80 years old that are diagnosed with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. 
and they need a caregiver or family member or a partner to attend study visits and report just on daily activities um, and oversee medication. So um, go ahead to gaintrial.com forward slash en. That's gaintrial.com forward slash en. And then last, I just want you to know that Alzheimer's Speaks is more than just a radio show. We have a blog. We have a YouTube channel that has a variety of um, information there from our dementia chats to our dementia quick tips and more. So you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com to find more out about us. Now, uh, today I have a co-host with me, and I just absolutely adore this woman. Her name is Loretta Woodward Benny, and she is a a speaker, a trainer, but just an overall amazing woman um, who is on a journey with her own mother who is living with dementia. So welcome, Loretta. How are you doing today? I'm great, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited for you to uh, to share the platform with me today. You always have uh, wonderful questions and insights. So thank you for joining us. Uh, next, awesome. I want int- next, I want to introduce... Uh, you to Nancy Olson, and she is the clinical research coordinator that works for Dr. Albenzi, and she is the first author on the paper that we're going to discuss today, and she is also coordinating um, the current clinical trials and um, tests for a flaxseed beverage in those with suspected Alzheimer's disease to see if it improves any memory or reduces any um, blood biomarkers in, uh, in AD that Dr. Albenzi is, uh, is heading up. So welcome, Nancy. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I'm excited that you can join us today. Now, um, last but not least, I want to um, introduce you to uh, Dr. Benedict C. Albenzi, and he is a full professor of pharmacology and therapeutics at Max Ratty College of Medicine at the University of Manitoba, and he is the principal investigator at the St. Boniface Hospital in Research, which is ranked the number one in Western Canada and in the top five across all of Canada. He currently holds two Alzheimer's disease and dementia research chairs, and Dr. Albenzi um, is also an American from the greater uh, the greater New York area and uh, New Jersey. So, so welcome. How are you doing today, doctor? Good afternoon. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, doing just fine here. Uh, really excited about talking to you today, Lori. Well, good. Um, when I start out, I always like to ask everybody if they've been personally touched by dementia. So I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, Dr. Albenzi, and uh, just let us know if you've been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends by dementia. Well, it's interesting you asked that question because as, uh, I've been working on Alzheimer's disease uh, for about 15 years now, and as it turns out, my mom developed dementia. I also had an aunt and uncle both have some sort of dementia a few years ago. That was our, my first personal experience, but then my mother developed dementia, and she died of dementia uh, actually Christmas Eve 2017, so I, I have firsthand experience um, with those three relatives. 
Wow. That's um that's gotta be something and especially to have somebody pass on a holiday to boot with that. Um, but I, I would imagine that that has had an impact in terms of your research and, and um, wanting to find some answers um, regarding this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it changes not only your perspective, and, but you, you reexamine the, the medical system and, and you look at not just at the scientific questions, but you pay a lot more attention to research care uh, or I mean Alzheimer's care in addition to Alzheimer's research and, and all the uh, disconnects and, and, you know, really ways that we need to improve the system. Yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. My, mo- my own mom had dementia for 30 years, and, boy, it just, that whole lens just broadens, and, and you're kind of an evil, evil eye scoping out everything at that point in terms of what does care even, what does it mean even? Um, that made me kind of reanalyze everything. Nancy, how about you? Have you been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends regarding dementia? Yes, I have been, Lori. And the funny thing is I my background, just so you're aware, is actually in microbiology and infectious diseases. And I worked in that for 27 years. So I never worked in Alzheimer's or dementia, and I actually knew very little about it. But I started working with Dr. Albenzi last July, and my dad, who had Parkinson's disease and was in a nursing home, had Parkinson's-induced dementia and did actually pass away in January from complications from it. So it's funny how I kind of ended up in this field, and then it had a personal you know, effect on me. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Loretta, how about you? Um, can you share with us if, if you've been personally touched and if so, how? Yes. Yeah, so my experience is with my mom. So this is year 14 as we are going on this journey. And she's just now slipping into what I would call the later stages. So that's been quite the journey for us, particularly over the last couple of weeks. But um, she's still you know, no matter what with this whole dementia uh, thing, she still has uh, just a spirit you cannot crush. So uh, as long as that stays, um, I guess I would say I'm pretty happy. I just want her to be comfortable and, and not in any pain. Well, it's funny you say a spirit that can't be crushed because now I know where yours comes from. <laughs> so you inherited that from your mom because you have, well, Loretta you. has uh, some of the best, energy and juju you'll ever ever come across i mean her <laughs> smile lights up a room and she just is uh just contagious with uh with joy so i again i appreciate you being with us today uh dr albenzi i want to start the show off by talking about what are some of the key challenges in alzheimer's disease research and care that that you've identified well, that's a great question, and of course there are many. Um, I guess I should to just talk a bit about the Alzheimer's disease research uh, challenges that we face right now. So it's, it's very interesting. If we look at the top causes of death uh, in the U.S. and North America, you know, there are things like stroke and cancer and heart disease. And over the years, all of these have actually had decreasing rates. So we're actually doing quite well with finding treatments and preventative medicine and finding and using new drugs to treat these sort of chronic and age-related diseases. But when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, 
uh, we're really failing. And if anything, those rates keep going up, and, and which is a, a serious concern for the whole area of Alzheimer's research. And in fact, if you look at the numbers across the world, someone develops dementia every three seconds. So it's really, a, an, in addition to COVID, it's another pandemic. And it's, it's really quite concerning uh, for not only the U.S. and Canada, but really across the whole world. And if, also, if you look at the NIH funding, so the National Institutes of Health in, in the U.S. is the main federal funding source, you know, there's been a lot of funding for cancer and HIV and heart disease research over the years, and, and typically these other areas have been funded at much, much higher rates than Alzheimer's disease research, only really over the last three years. And as a direct result of some new laws and, and a lot of lobbying efforts, uh, because there have been a number of new Alzheimer's groups popping up across the U.S., has it changed? So over the last three years, there has been a pretty significant increase in Alzheimer's disease uh, research funding, but it still pales by comparison when you compare it to cancer or even some of the other chronic uh, diseases. So, you know, those are two huge challenges. And, of course, there's only four drugs that are being used that have been approved by the FDA, and we haven't had a new drug since 2003. There's a fifth drug that's used in combination, but really there's only four drugs. And, and you probably know that these drugs uh, show only modest benefit and only in some people. So for many people, they don't really do much at all. And so there's, you know, over 100 drugs in the pipeline. But, you know, most of the drug therapy over the years is really focused on blocking or clearing a beta. So this is that toxic protein uh, that, that builds up in these plaques, these sticky deposits. And so, so much effort has been over the years to remove a beta, but we're still starting to really open the field up and people are thinking about other approaches as opposed to just blocking plaques and tangles. So that, those are some of the challenges in research. With Alzheimer's disease uh, care, we have a whole different set of challenges. I mean, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the stigma associated with mental illness in general and uh, Alzheimer's disease in particular, and that still exists. And it, and it exists not only in the uh, general public, but it still exists, believe it or not, with healthcare practitioners. And this has been shown in several uh, surveys and studies by Alzheimer's Disease International across the world, is that even practitioners still need to be educated about the stigma associated with Alzheimer's. And of course, then there's the challenges that caregivers face and the rest homes and personal caregivers or personal care homes have every day. So just dealing with uh, residents that have agitation and aggression and the wandering that we see, getting lost, and uh, the sort of burnout and stress that we have with caregivers. And of course, you know, for Alzheimer's disease, the, one of the main hallmarks is memory loss. So we have a lot of different challenges with Alzheimer's disease uh, research and care. You know, there's still a lack of knowledge and awareness amongst the public, uh, not only in North America, but in many countries. And diagnosing Alzheimer's disease is still a challenge. In fact, we just published a paper recently from my lab identifying some of the uh, more novel approaches to diagno uh, diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. And then finally, I think that what we're going to talk more about today, of course, are the challenges that we see in diverse communities and in, in racial uh, minorities across the U.S. and Canada. I got involved in some of this last year when I co-authored a paper with a large team on ethnic and racial disparities and Alzheimer's disease in the U.S., and it was focused largely on African Americans and Hispanics. 
But living in Manitoba got me thinking about uh, our indigenous populations in both the U.S. and Canada and how they're really underrepresented. So that's yet another challenge. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the list goes on. And when you talk about the stigmas, people are shocked that the stigmas exist in healthcare because people are going there to get help. And so, of course, they think that their healthcare professionals understand this and they have empathy towards it and they've got resources, but so many <coughs> don't actually have a true understanding of what life is like uh, with dementia, um, both in the public and in in healthcare as as a whole. So I, I'm glad you brought that up and and you know stating that there's only four drugs and you know the last one was 2003. I mean it's like holy Christ. That's not much, and it's nice to hear that there's all these in the pipeline, but, you know, that pipeline kind of stalls out, too, and I've been hearing from others that, you know, because of COVID, um, they're having a hard time continuing, even working on their trials and things um, that, you know, clinical trials with people, they've kind of stalled out because they can't see them in person a lot, and so there's there's so many multiple levels that we're that we're dealing with in this in this process. Why don't you talk about your program that's addressing some of the drug trial challenges? Yeah, so like other labs, we, we spend a lot of time looking at plaques and tangles, but we actually spend more time looking at more novel uh, targets. And so in particular, uh, the other hallmark in addition to plaques and tangles that have really uh, uh, has come to the attention of many scientists is brain inflammation. So we, we have different methods that we use and we study uh, inflammatory processes in the brain. And of course, you know, short-term inflammation is a natural process. It's part of healing, but it's the chronic and long-term inflammation that we see associated with cancer and Alzheimer's disease and other uh, illnesses that we're concerned about. So my lab has a in-depth focus on brain inflammation and also brain metabolism. And, and so with regard to brain metabolism, in fact, maybe you've heard this before, but some people have called uh, Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes because mm -hmm. of the similarity between uh, metabolic changes and, and the changes that we see in brain metabolism in Alzheimer's disease. So we also focus on that. And in particular, you know, a lot of brain metabolism uh, is really done – uh, conducted by an organelle in the cell called the mitochondria. And you, you might remember from college or high school biology that the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. We get our energy from the mitochondria. They're really the uh, energy currency. And so it's very similar to like the furnace in your house that supplies heat. Uh, the mitochondria supply all the heat and energy to all the cells, and we can't survive without it. And so as we age, our mitochondria don't work as well, but also in diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer and even other, there's probably 20 or 30 diseases and conditions where the mitochondria will become dysfunctional, they, they affect uh, metabolism, in particular brain metabolism. So our lab has a huge focus on looking at mitochondrial function. Uh, the other novel approach that we're experimenting with and we're partnering with a company in California called Mitochondrial Transfusion is that we're hoping to do some pilot experiments very soon where we're going to transfuse mitochondria from one animal to another. And this has already been done in a couple different contexts. 
and it was first done in a pediatric patient in Har at Harvard a couple of years ago, and it was actually a child that was having heart surgery, and they transfused some healthy mitochondria from one part of the heart into the, uh, the damaged part of the heart, and it improved the outcome. So that really opened up the doors to a lot of people being interested in mitochondrial transfusion and its applications in different diseases, and we're, we're looking at that. We're hoping to do some of our first experiments over the next year in mice, in our Alzheimer's mice. And then finally, we look at both diets. Uh, we've been working with creatine and flaxseed and choline and also novel drugs to see how we can improve mitochondrial function. And so one drug that you might not expect to be helpful, we're, that we're working with an anti-cancer drug called nilotinib. And that, can't, that drug has been used in leukemia. And I'm working on this project with a colleague, Dr. Uh, Scott Turner at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where he's using that drug in his memory clinic, and they found benefit in both Parkinson's patients and in Alzheimer's patients. And so we're trying to understand how this drug works, especially since it's an anti-cancer drug, and our, our methods that involve uh, assessing mitochondrial function. And then finally, the, we have a big clinical trial that we're hoping to start very soon once we get the green light, and that's what Nancy's coordinating. That's our flaxseed beverage trial, where the primary outcome is to look at memory and uh, also to look at blood biomarkers to see if we can reduce uh, different inflammatory markers that we believe are associated with uh, Alzheimer's disease pathology. Oh, interesting. I'm just going to um, pull Loretta in and see if she has any questions at this point in time. Loretta, any questions or comments you have for the doctor? I don't have any questions, but wow, that sounds amazing. So I'm really excited. How cool is yeah. that? Me too. Me too. Okay. Well, then I'm going to go back and um, and I, I have a couple other questions that I want to talk to uh, Dr. Albanzi and Nancy about. And I think I'm going to go to Nancy here first on this one. And that is, what are some of the disparities that you're seeing in Alzheimer's disease clinical trials, if you can get maybe a little bit more specific, and um, that you consider areas of, of really immediate need of change? Well, based on the research I did on my paper, um, we know that for quite a long period of time now in Alzheimer's disease research, there have been disparities um, getting the proper enrollment numbers among racial minorities and also among women. And the, the paper that I wrote focuses mainly on the indigenous population here in Canada and the United States, but it also applies to African Americans, the Latino population in the US, also the Asian population. And the numbers just haven't been there. And there's been, um, you know, various indications of why. But getting those numbers up, I think, is very important because they represent the population that are getting this disease. And the reason they're getting this disease a lot of times, in the case of racial minorities, is they're a poorer population and they are in socioeconomic situations that put them at a higher risk. So they might have a lot of comorbidities and underlying disease, and they end up, you know, getting Alzheimer's disease at a higher rate. And they're also, their population numbers are increasing, both in the U.S. and Canada. So it's definitely an area that there are discrepancies and disparities in Alzheimer's disease trials, and it's certainly an area, I think, that does require immediate need. 
How how do you think we go about in changing that and in getting more people involved? Um, well, I wrote a whole paper on that. <laughs> uh, I think there's a there's a lot of reasons for the disparity. I think the first thing you have to do is understand why. Why are you having problem with enrollment? Um, in general, in Alzheimer's disease, you have the issue of ageism because it is an older population. Alzheimer's is a disease of the of the aging, so it's hard sometimes getting an older population to come into clinical trials. So that's one issue. And there might be mobility issues. They may not have a car. They may not have access to the clinic, reasons like that. And then the fact they are in cognitive decline also makes it a challenge because at times you need a, an advocate, if you will, to come to the clinic with them and help them with all the complicated documents and papers. So those are general challenges just of having an Alzheimer's disease trial. Then you get into the racial minorities. Some of them don't live near the big centers and the big hospitals mm-hmm. and the big clinics where the trials are being held. So maybe they don't have a car. Maybe they're in a poor neighborhood. Maybe they have to take a bus. Um, maybe in the case of Indigenous, they don't even live in the cities. They live on remote reserves. So that's certainly an issue. Do you see language uh, a barrier as well for some? Well, with the Indigenous, I know there's um, 25% approximately um, that actually speak a language other than English, um, especially on the reserves. And I should mention that in the United States, about 25% of Indigenous live on reserves. In Canada, it's as high as 45%. And I believe it's approximately 70 languages that are spoken in Canada and almost 200 in the United States. So language is an issue with recruitment material, um, but also, of course, with the actual documentation in a clinical trial. And some of the cognitive testing platforms, which are just pen and paper tests that they have to do. If it's not something in an easy-to-understand language, then they're not going to be able to do those tests. So that's definitely a language. Uh, language is definitely a barrier. Do you ever see in the future that, that maybe some of these trials are just set up in areas that they live to to overcome that? I, I mean, I've... I've heard this being discussed for for a long time about, you know, we need to get more people involved, but it doesn't seem like we're taking steps to get closer to them. And we're, we seem to still no, be putting but part the, of Yeah, part mm-hmm. of the problem in Canada, not so much in the United States, but in Canada is a geographical isolation. I mean, we have a massive country, the second largest in the world by size, and 80% of our population lives within 100 kilometers of the United States border. So we have this massive northern geographical area, and that's where most of the reserves that have Inuit or um, indigenous peoples are actually found, and many of them do not have permanent roads. So they, okay. And they may not even have a permanent clinic or a hospital. They may have a nursing station. So the physician has to fly in, or a nurse has to fly in, and it's hard enough to diagnose them with Alzheimer's disease, let alone also talk about a trial and get a trial going on site. So that is a challenge. Okay, interesting. Um, Dr. Albenzi, anything that you want to add to what Nancy has just uh, talked about? Yeah, I would just add that language is really part of a, a bigger set, and the bigger set are cultural differences. 
And so, you know, when we start thinking about differences in culture, language is really one component, and it's really the cultural differences and, and, and the lack of cultural sensitivity that exists that, that really is an impediment to cl clinical trial enrollment. Um, I should also mention, and Nancy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's only one registered clinical trial in the U.S. right now for indigenous people. Yes, so when you, yes in fact, um, that is true. There's approximately 1,400 um, Alzheimer's and dementia-specific clinical trials that are registered right now in the U.S., and of 1,400, only one is specific to an indigenous population. Wow. Right. So, Lori, when you asked about, you know, how close are, are people to the trial, well, when you, there's only one trial across the whole country, uh, you know, that becomes a real problem. Yep, yep. I didn't know if there was a way to be able to, to set up uh, clinics or to be able, like you said, even, to, if, even if you have to fly in, you know, once a month or something to be able to meet with people and, um, and do whatever needs to be done if, if something like that was ever discussed or thought about or maybe maybe I'm just left field. <laughs> yeah, I know that um um there was a paper put out in Canada um about indigenous clinical trials and I believe there was 45 worldwide in the last 40 years and only 6 of those were in Canada and I don't know how many were in the US. So obviously the challenges have been there for a long time. Um, it's very difficult to fly in. You know how expensive you can imagine that would be. Yeah. And it's hard for them to come to a center, an urban center, and find their way when they may not speak the language. They may have, um, you know, a cultural issues with being inside the city. And to try and find their way to, um, you know, a clinical trial site, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, I can, I can believe that. Um, Loretta, I want to pull you in because my, my guess is you have some thoughts on this. Any comments or questions? Sure. I think that from the comment uh, standpoint, uh, we were just featured in Psychology Today uh, last month, and the article was about the um, disparities, you know, in, in treatment. And, you know, treatment obviously in trials are very different, but one of the things, and particularly in the African-American community, that we have found from way back, uh, I remember – um, when I was first starting college in the 1980s, and um, I was doing a science, you know, project, and it was about, um, you know, informing, you know, folks of clinical trials. And when I mentioned it, my homework that I needed, you know, a few relatives to participate in, my grandmother's first response was, "Oh no, trials! You know, those are dangerous things." And they're thinking back, you know, when all of those um, trials were going on, where African Americans were sort of used as guinea pigs, if you will, without their permission. So that put fear in the hearts of, you know, everybody. Like, oh, never sign up for anything like that. So you know, the fear was never really overcome. And even you know today. Sometimes I've gone to Alzheimer's um, Association presentations, and, you know, thankfully AARP and other groups have been there to hand out lit literature. So you want to know about a clinical trial and until the, with African Americans on the cover of, of that brochure. And then people started to listen to some of the things. But that stigma was around for so long. Don't sign up for any trial because you never know what they're going to do to your body. And my grandparents were adamant about that. And I tried to show them things in the textbook, but that's how they were raised. And so maybe some of the effort in changing this is doing what 
um, AARP and, and some others are going out and really focusing on that demographic, whether, as you said, you know, it's in a poor neighborhood or whatever, have somebody going door to door, if you will, because a lot of these folks don't have computers. So it's easy to say, get online and check out what a clinical trial is. And some of them can't do that especially now with senior centers closed and things like that. So sometimes it is going and knocking on doors and saying, here, here's a brochure with people who look like you on the cover. And this is some of the great things that clinical trials do. But I I just remember the fear on the look, you know, uh, on the faces of my grandparents when I was talking to them just about a homework assignment. And, you know, you saw how deep that fear really went. And I'm certainly not the only one, you know, who probably has a story like that. Yeah, well, and even going one one step further from just having someone who looks like them on the brochure, but having someone speaking to them who Absolutely. looks like yeah. them. I mean, uh, that's a huge, huge difference. And I think that's one of it the is. things with uh, dementia as a whole. Everyone thought it was an old person's disease, and then all of a sudden now we're, we're seeing people in their 40s and their 50s and some even younger, and people are shocked going, oh, well, I – I, you know, that's not how I pictured yeah. this at all. But it took that to change people's impressions because we believe. Yeah, Lori, that- I should. Uh, sorry, it's Nancy mm-hmm. here. I should mention that the one thing I noticed the most when I was doing research for this paper is it's the diagnosis of Alzheimer's in these racial minority communities. That is still a big um, yeah. problem. And it's, it is yeah. the language, it is the historical inequities between the federal government yep. and a lot of the indigenous. They don't trust them. And like, Correct. you know, it was said, they, they think they're being guinea pigs and they think that nobody really cares about them. So I think that is a big issue. So they have started targeting these populations with information brochures that are culturally sensitive, with packages. And I know the um, Montreal Cognition Test, for example, now has a whole series of tests in their languages and using animal pictures and words that are culturally appropriate. Because if you show an elder on a reserve a picture of a camel, they're not going to know what that is. And it doesn't mean they're cognitively impaired. They just don't see that animal. So those are the type of things that are making real progress, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that those types of things are extremely important um, for us to adjust because, um, you know, they've got every reason to distrust <laughs> what's going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. You know, I could at. spend a whole hour just talking about some of the disparities, um, sort of the cultural inequities that have occurred yeah. in populations in both our countries Yep. Right. and the reason yeah. for that distrust. Yep. And and I, I loved when you, you know, you said, you know, the, the whole camel and thing like that, because sometimes people, they just project, well, if you don't get it, you know, you've got an issue or, you know, something is wrong. And it's like, if you've never learned it, if you've never experienced it, of course, you're not going to know. And um, exactly. I'm trying to think, um, oh, who was the coach, Pat, who, who uh, got dementia? Um, oh, I can't think of her last name, but I re- I remember oh, her Pat son. From yeah. Tennessee? Yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things that I loved, her son went in and they allowed him to go in while she was testing. And he said, well, of course she didn't get those right. 
She's never been good at math. Those are things she's not, not just, my mom's a people person. She can solve any problem. But you throw a math equation in front of her, forget it. You know, that's just not where she's good at. And he was really well, upset yeah. that she was being evaluated in, in areas. Well, one of, she, one of the questions I remember coming across in my research was, who's the president of the United States? Mm-hmm. Well, in some of these indigenous communities, they've never maybe had a television. They're quite poor. Yeah, correct. They yeah. don't know, actually, who the president of the United States is, literally. And it's not that they're, like I said, cognitively declined. They may not have Alzheimer's at all. They just cannot answer that question because it's yeah. not culturally appropriate. Yeah. It would be nice if there was a way to, uh, to adjust those tests. Um, and I'm sure that that would take a, a, a lot of work um, to do, but it, it only seems like the right and the fair thing uh, to do to, to be able to come out with a, with a, a proper di- diagnosis. Um, Nancy, now we've, we've kind of touched on this, and maybe we've gone as in-depth as you want to, but um, what are some of the clinical trial enrollment issues that you've identified in your paper? Do you want to go more in-depth into that? Um, regarding um, race yeah. and sex? Well, as I meant, um, there's all kinds of issues with clinical trials. There's the whole ethics committee um, process, how complicated it is, the documents and the time frame, the staffing, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you finally get everything together. It takes you six months and you're ready to enroll. And I know for a fact about 27% of all clinical trials never enroll a single person. So... I think enrollment is actually the biggest issue, and it is not just in invisible minorities or women. It is mm-hmm. across the board. And some of those challenges for enrollment are, first of all, do they have access to information about these trials? So are you using the right platforms? Are you, you know, you're putting it on a computer platform. Maybe they don't have computers or a radio or TV. Also, um, as Ben had mentioned, um, primary care physicians would be really helpful in getting a lot of these participants to enroll, but they're so busy um, with their patients that they don't have a lot of time to sit down and discuss clinical trials. So I think if we got the primary care physicians involved, that would help quite a bit. Um, There's the language barriers, as I mentioned, the distrust in government, the geographical isolation, which is not something that can be easily overcome. You know, there's just the mistrust, of course. And then when you get into women, specifically indigenous women, it's even worse because there's a lot of historical inequities that are specifically um, have affected women at a much higher rate. So, excuse me, I'm losing my voice already. And then I would imagine you run into some of the just cultural differences where we take care of our own and we don't talk about this. It's, It's almost like a dirty laundry type thing. We don't, we don't air this. We just, yeah, and we just, we just well, what's it. interesting in the indigenous population, especially is they don't even know what the word dementia and Alzheimer are. And mm-hmm. they don't really use those words because they look to their elders and their spiritual elders. And they mm-hmm. often think that memory loss is just a return to childhood or it's mm-hmm. the creator's intent or it's a passing over to the other side. Mm-hmm. So, when you have that kind of belief, it's hard for you to say, you know what, this might be a disease that we can help and we can mm-hmm. treat. Yeah. So there's often just that kind of misinterpretation of what their symptoms mean. So that's a big issue as well. 
Oh, that's interesting. And I can say even that like is. with my my mom who lived with it for 30 years, I mean, there were times I, I, that's exactly what I felt. Like she was returning to her childhood. She, you know, she, she wasn't paranoid anymore about what anybody thought. And she was just her authentic self and she could play like a child and she could teach me to play like a child again. Cause I have kind of lost that as an adult being serious about the world. And, and she would have conversations with people who had passed and, you know, some would say, well, you know, that's, that's a little cray cray, you know, she shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, she's happy and content. I am not worried about this at all. You know, she's, she's okay. If she was upset and whatever, I, then I would, as a daughter, I'd have an issue, but she's calm. And well, that was the same with my father with his Parkinson's induced dementia. It was the same thing. He was perfectly happy where he was. You know, mm-hmm. he had stories about things that went back 40, 50 years, and you just sat there and nodded, and, you know, that was great. Glad you're happy about it. Glad you remember that. So I think it's just harder on the family a lot of times than it actually is on, the, on those with dementia and Alzheimer's because a lot of times they're quite content, and they do go back to their childhood. So Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. I do have a question, too. What, Nancy, you mentioned um, some a significant portion of trials don't have any uh, people participating in them. What happens then? It just goes away? It doesn't go forward? Yeah, a lot of them just, I think, oh. end. They just don't have, they run wow. out of funding or they, yeah, so it, I was surprised when I did research on this. Exactly how. And, it, and apparently one in six too. Americans are required to actually fulfill trials right now that are required. And it's huge numbers. Oh. Okay. Wow. So the length of the trial would take more time. So you might think you could get a trial done in three to six months, but with the actual numbers that, uh, in terms of real-time recruitment, maybe it might take two to three years. So it's a real challenge. And, and it's not just Canada. I mean, I have colleagues in Washington, D.C. and other places on the East Coast in the U.S. That have, that have recruitment challenges as well. And that's why there's a variety of vendors in the U.S. that uh, a clinical trial will actually uh, hire as a subcontractor to help with recruitment uh, because recruitment is just difficult no matter what the population is and it doesn't matter what the location is. There's always recruitment challenges. But yeah, the other I thing I, I just wanted to follow up with on what Nancy's comments were, I think the lesson to be learned from all this really is that one shoe just does not fit everyone. And and it's so true. And, and, you know, there's been a movement over the years in personalized medicine. And if anything, we're going to see more of this in the future, not less of it. And so we can't just use white university college males for our clinical trials. And, and that's to, for a long time. It, that's that's exactly who participated and volunteered for a lot of clinical trials, especially for phase one and the healthy volunteers. Um, And so we've learned, and in fact, a major focus of my lab now is to look at sex-based differences in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And there are all kinds of differences, I'm sure, as you know, because of the biological differences between males and females, because of the estrus cycle, and things that we just didn't want to think about because it was just too complicated to include women in, in terms of drug action, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, all those things that pharmacologists think about. It was just too complicated. And, and at this point in life, we know that we can't just ignore it anymore. Uh, and those you know, subpopulations have to be included, and we have to tailor those special specialized populations uh, and, and get proper enrollment. And it's even, if you think about A-beta, 
uh, A-beta expresses itself differently in male versus female brains, and even the onset of the appearance of these biological markers are different depending on the sex. So we have a lot of things that we have to really make very specific for race, for culture, and for sex, et cetera. I totally, totally agree. I know Maria Shriver is really big on getting some more research that's, you know, based on women and uh, because she sees the, the disparities between, you know, just men and women in terms of trials and things. So um, there's just so, there's so much work to do, and yet we need the money to do it. Um, and we need the creativity to be able to tap into things and figure out how to get people enrolled. I talk to people all the time, and I'm sure Loretta does as well, about the, the power of getting into these trials. And, and I think one of the things that I can honestly say that I have heard multiple times is, you know, we've tried and we've tried and we've tried, but we always get kicked out. And, um, and so then people just stop trying. And they don't necessarily understand why the trials have to be so specific because they really, really do want to help. And so um, I think if we can get more variety in terms of who qualifies for the trial, um, we'll, we'll make a huge difference as well on that. And, and Dr. Uh, Elbensi, I don't know what's, what your thoughts are on that but, or if you've experienced that, but I, I've heard that a ton from people. Well, you know, the the interesting thing about the COVID pandemic is that we're going to see a revolution in clinical trial research. There have been a lot of negative consequences of COVID, but one of the positive consequences is that we're all learning how to go online and we're learning to deal with remote locations. And we're going to see this in clinical trials because it's already started. We're going to see drug delivery to your home. We're going to see drones delivering drugs. And again, some of this has already started. We're going to see more telehealth. We're going to see people having interviews and some of their questionnaires and even some of their memory tests done online between the physician or between the PI of the trial and the participant. So we're going to see a major shift because of COVID. Uh, so in the more immediate future with regards to the use of online resources for clinical trials. And I think that will help enrollment and will help recruitment to some degree. It's always going to be a challenge, especially in older populations, with using um, you know, more complicated forms of technology because older people just aren't used to using Zoom or WebEx or whatever, and they're not even used to using email or a computer in some cases. But I, I think we're going we're gonna to be training the elderly in these resources, and it's really become the new norm uh, to use an online and other um, you know, Internet uh, tools for clinical trial enrollment going forward. Yeah, and I, and I think families are getting more involved, too, with doing Zoom meetings and setting mom and dad up so that these things can happen um, just on a, a social level because they've, they've felt and seen the need for that. Um, which should help. But, again, a lot of times it's just getting the equipment uh, or, you know, if they have the equipment, do they have Internet? You know, that's a whole other problem, right. too, that needs to be addressed. That's another and, level of disparity if you don't own a computer or you don't have a, a network to hook into. That's right. Yeah, and so I know, like, with the schools, uh, for some of the rural schools here in the U.S., they've been putting a bus out 
And so kids can hop on the bus and do their homework on the bus because they don't have internet, but the bus does, you know, has satellites wow. that can beam it in. So there's a, there's a lot of different things that can be tapped into. And, you know, one of the things that I've always wanted to see, and, I, and I've not pushed it, um, but the other thing is that, you know, kids go through technology like it's toilet paper. And if we could, you know, get those um, items from them and repurpose them, you know, that could keep costs down and could kind of work as a greater good and could maybe help these kids get involved in some pretty cool projects as well yeah. in, ter- in terms of doing things. Go ahead, Nancy. Lori, I should just mention one thing that came up when I was um, looking at some of the suggestions for how to improve um, enrollment, mm-hmm. especially in the indigenous populations and especially in remote areas, is what's called digital biomarkers. So mm-hmm. these include, like, the technologies you were talking about, smartphones and tablets and smartwatches, et cetera, that you can actually put on people in remote communities, and you can monitor them. And mm-hmm. it can look at changes in things like the movement or speech or language, eye movement, behavior, and that's one way of possibly diagnosing an indigenous elder in a remote community with Alzheimer's disease without you actually having to be there. Oh, interesting. So it's a new, it's a new technology yeah. they're looking at for remote diagnosis. So that's another thing that is probably going to come around, you know, pretty soon. And what is that called again? It's called, like, they call it digital biomarkers. So a traditional wow. biomarker, you take a blood sample. So you have to physically be there, poke them with a needle, collect the blood, and go look at changes in biomarkers in their blood. But if you put a smartphone or a tablet or a smart watch on them and it monitors everything from their eye movement to their physical um, movement to language to their autonomic nervous system to all kinds of things like that remotely, and then you look at the results on the smartphone or the smart watch, you can actually see changes over the course of time in behavior that might lead to you thinking they are developing Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. We're going to see some neat things coming up. Um, Dr. Albanese, going forward, what are you going to be working on? What are some some projects that you have in mind? Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit already is that we have a major focus in our lab, and I have major funding to look at sex-based differences in Alzheimer's. And and some of this work actually is taking place in in samples, in mitochondrial samples, because some of our data that we obtained a few years ago is that we showed sex-based differences in the way mitochondria function in males versus females. And what was interesting is that we saw very early changes, uh, negative changes in female Alzheimer's mice and their mitochondria. And so in our Alzheimer's mice, they, they started having negative, uh, they, be, they had mitochondrial dysfunction as early as two months, or the males didn't develop this until six to nine months later. So we have a huge, um, huge uh, effort in that area. We're also going to continue looking at dietary differences, flaxseed, creatine, choline, and that sort of thing. So that's our preventative uh, Alzheimer's approach. And then we're going to continue to look at existing drugs like nilotinib and other compounds. We have an area of, uh, we're going to look at NRF, NRF2 activators, which would take a while to explain, but ways of activating different biochemical pathways that would provide protection. And this could be of benefit to people with later stage disease. 
Um, our work with creatine also showed sex-based uh, differences in Alzheimer's, and that was interesting in mice. We need to do more work. Basically, we found that creatine was uh, improved learning and memory and mitochondrial function in Alzheimer's female mice, but in male mice, they were the, the results were mixed, and so we need to work more on that. Um, I've already mentioned the mitochondrial transfusion that we plan on doing, and we're hoping that by transfusing uh, mitochondria into our Alzheimer's mice, we can improve memory and reduce inflammation. And then, of course, we have a, a new collaboration with the National Microbiology Lab in, in Canada to look at, uh, to use COVID. And we're going to be working with some animal models that are infected with COVID and to see the effects on neurological function because there's emerging data across the world, really, that neurological function is affected from COVID. And so we're going to look more closely than, at that. In fact, I'm an editor-in-chief for the journal Molecular Neurobiology, and we have a special issue right now where I'm trying to uh, attract submissions on COVID uh, studies around the world and how neurological function is affected. Um, so we've, we've got that project going on where we're going to see if we can reduce brain inflammation in COVID-infected animals in, our, in the studies in my lab. The other collaboration I have going on is in New England uh, in Massachusetts is with TMS, and TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so this is going to be done in combination with cognitive training or like brain fitness training. And people have shown that TMS is effective at reducing uh, some of the effects of depression. And it's been uh, other forms of electrical stimulation have been tried over the years for schizophrenia, obesity, epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, and so on. Uh, but this one form, TMS in particular, uh, has been gaining traction and in terms of uh, using it for depression. And so we're, we just wrote a grant submitted to the NIH to uh, attempt to use TMS in combination with cognitive training in Alzheimer's patients to see if we can improve memory. And then finally, you know, Nancy is uh, a prime, uh, is our leader in our clinical trial looking at a flaxseed beverage. We're doing that locally in Winnipeg, but it's my hope to uh, interact with my colleagues in the U.S. and test uh, flaxseed beverage at some sites across the U.S. Uh, as well. And again, you know, the hope is to improve memory and reduce markers of brain inflammation, which we believe is a driving force uh, for Alzheimer's disease pathology. Wonderful. Thank you. Nancy, anything you want to add? Um, no, not really. <laughs> it sounds like we'll be busy for a while. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would agree. Now, to get a hold of Dr. Albenzi, uh, you can call, uh, and the, the U.S. phone is 973-668-0206. That's 973-668-0206. Or uh, the Canadian uh, number would be uh, 204-235-3942. That's 204 204- Two three five three nine four two, and then you can always uh, shoot him an email, and that is at b a l b e n s i at s b r c dot c a. 
Um, so thank you so much for, for both joining us today. I, I really appreciate it so much. And Loretta, I just want to say thank you to you and uh, for joining me as a co-host today. And do you want to give out any contact information if people want to reach out to you? Uh, um, sure. My website is LorettaVeney.com, L-O-R-E-T-T-A-V-E-N-E-Y. And I really thoroughly enjoyed this. I learned so much this afternoon. So thanks for having me, Laurie. I really appreciate it. Great. Yeah, thank you, Lori. Thank you, Loretta. It's been our pleasure to be a part of this today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. uh, Thank you all. For taking the time, for for educating us and really opening our minds over things that need to change. And, you know, hopefully we'll all be able to work together um, to get some of these disparities uh, pushed aside so we don't have to label them that anymore. And and we do have more of an even keel. Uh, trial system for all. So again, thank you listeners. Please like, click, and share uh, this episode. I think it has been very informative and we will talk with you all soon. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.